Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Does spirituality need to have an ultimate evil? Let's find out. If there's one thing that is a consistent assumption about religion and spirituality in our, to be honest, Christian-dominated world, it's the automatic assumption that there must be an ultimate good and an ultimate evil, that these ultimate goods and ultimate evils correspond to specific entities of some kind or another— And that whatever the good thing does is always justified because they're ultimately righteous. And what the bad thing does is always bad because they are damned. If take me to your leader is the stock phrase for aliens landing on Earth, then you could also say that the stock phrase in our current society's understanding of religion anyway, for a spiritual seeker would probably be something like, take me to your god and devil. This, however, doesn't really describe the fullness of spirituality and religion in the world. It only really covers what you see in Christian and Christian-influenced assumptions. But as anyone who takes any amount of time to study things like indigenous religion and other forms of non-Christian and non-Abrahamic spirituality, you'll often find that good and evil is much more something that resides within what people do than necessarily specific beings. This is just as true in Nordic spirituality and many other modern pagan spiritualities. There may be adversarial, at times hostile, or even dangerous deific powers and other powers of other sorts, but they're not necessarily the root of all evil, the cause of all woe, or some kind of active tempter seeking to corrupt and undermine the whole of creation. What this means for modern practitioners is deep and profound. It's not an exaggeration to say that much of how we think about religion and spirituality is heavily filtered through particularly Christianity's heaven and hell kind of dichotomy, where God and the devil are always in conflict and always at odds with one another, and never the twain shall meet. 
there are other ways that this tendency, along with obsessions with more Christian understandings of purification, play out. Such as, for example, within the New Age community, you have a strong tendency towards avoiding negative vibes and a whole sort of tradition, really, of spiritual bypassing that's based around not dealing with what's seen as more base emotions. That base emotions thing is also not something that's unique to the New Age world or even spirituality, really. The idea of human beings having an animal nature, a base self that has to be overcome, is one that is pervasive in all kinds of different modern philosophies. It's also something that I think shares a common origin and significant influence from this whole idea of there being a darker underworld evil force that is constantly struggling to bring down all that is light, good, and heavenly. Dispensing with the need for an inherent dichotomy of baked-in cosmic conflict really changes how you think about spirituality and also how you approach reality in general. And that's what this episode is going to be about. Over the course of this episode, I'm going to get into what I mean when I talk about a spirituality without devils, what that concept looks like, how a spirituality without ultimate evil might look, before I then unpack the actual character of the devil, such as they are within modern Christian myth and lore, before then also talking about how there has been something of a tendency among Nordic pagans and also society more generally to port over this heaven and hell, gods and demons kind of dichotomy onto Nordic myth and why that doesn't really work. From there, I'll then wrap things up and touch on a few key points again, just to help, you know, get everything into a nice, neat package. So let's kick this off first with the core concept of a spirituality without devils. To give a nice sort of nutshell version of this, I think a spirituality without devils is any spirituality where there are no ultimate good or evil forces in the world. The various cosmic, spiritual, and earthly powers in existence operate based on their own logic, assumptions, and goals. And these are also products of their particular conditions, experiences, and developments over time. Morality, therefore, is assessed more on impacts and consequences than necessarily by being on the right side or in alignment with what is perceived as holy. What makes something holy or sacred is that it is of the powers— and these things do not necessarily always mean that holy or sacred things or acts are always good, beneficial, and justified. Now, this is not to say there is no right and wrong and everything is relative, but rather what defines right and wrong are the consequences and impacts of actions and decisions 
rather than whether or not those actions and decisions were in pursuit of some larger abstract goal that has been declared as inherently moral or inherently ethical. Broader ideas like particular ethical virtues serve more as guides and points on a compass regarding ethical behavior than necessarily hard and fast lines that must not be crossed. What this means is the question of ethics and right and wrong becomes a matter of what these actions do for people and living beings, what the consequences are of particular choices on human and non-human intelligences of all kinds, and what kind of world it leaves us with once the dust has settled from a particular course of action. What this also means is that responsibility for actions falls on the people who engage in those actions. They may be motivated by particular ideological, ethical, or spiritual systems that influence the way they interpret, understand, and respond to the world around them. But at the end of the day, they are the ones who chose to take the actions based on those interpretations and understandings. Living beings are free to make whatever lives we can as best as we choose, though not necessarily as we like, while also bearing responsibility for what those decisions mean for others and the world around us. This is why I say that this approach is not one that means anything goes and there are no rules or boundaries. Harm and consequences still matter, and who bears the blame for those harm and consequences are the people who carry them out, and also are the ones who should be shouldering the burden of repairing the damage that's been done as best as they can, however they are able to. What this means, however, is that the way we understand good and evil right and wrong and all these things is very different if you take out the possibility of an ultimate evil. When there are things that can exist as inherently good or inherently bad, then that means right and wrong is something that comes down to nature. This, by the way, is a sentiment that is not just limited to religion and Christianity. Frequently in debates over criminal justice, for example, you see the question of whether or not a person's criminality is something that's a product of their environment, which is what most social sciences point to, that circumstances and surroundings are what push people to make the decisions that they do, or if it's a product of one's inherent nature which is something that's been prevailing for a lot longer than a more rehabilitative, circumstance-driven understanding of crime and its causes. The reason why this is the challenge that it is is because assuming that morality is ultimately down to certain inherent traits absolves others and society of responsibility for those who trespass, either for creating the circumstances that made it possible for them to engage in, say, an abuse of power, or put them in a place where they were pushed 
to cross societal boundaries in the name of survival and fulfilling basic needs. When we are all responsible for the circumstances that push people towards doing good, bad, or indifferent things, then that makes it harder for us to simply brush it off as, well, that's somebody who went too far. One great example of this kind of whitewashing that you can find in American popular culture is the tendency from around the late 1960s up until the early 2000s to treat members of the Ku Klux Klan, one of America's most notorious white nationalist hate groups with a long bloody pedigree of brutal violence dating back to the aftermath of the American Civil War as more of a fringe product of ignorant rednecks stereotypically portrayed as not knowing any better or being removed from society or in other ways a convenient outsider someone who's not part of american society even though the historical record shows the ku klux klan up until the late 1960s, early 1970s, was an organization that regularly attracted the interests and attention of incredibly powerful and influential people. In the 1920s and 1930s, Klan chapters were just as common as groups like the Rotary Club and other civic improvement organizations, with members including dentists, doctors, judges, police chiefs, and all kinds of people in positions of power and authority. It's harder to argue that the people who become attracted to the Klan are somehow inherently flawed or not representative of the United States of America when you factor in that the Klan was, in many parts of the United States, as American as baseball and apple pie, And one of the states that had the highest Klan membership during the Klan's heyday of the 20s and 30s was Indiana, which was quite solidly north of the Mason-Dixon line and had no history of being a slave state. When good and evil are questions of inherent traits, which are demonstrated by things like one's associations, one's station in society, how one acts in terms of whether or not they're a good civil person who adheres to social mores and customs, then it gets a lot easier in some ways to not really examine why people engage in harmful actions. The phrase, they were just a bad person, or they had too much negativity, or they were consumed by their sins, or anything like that, are forms of bypassing and excuses that allow people to avoid these bigger questions and address the underlying causes behind why the certain harmful or destructive deeds, organizations, or ideas are able to flourish. It also on the flip side, I think, creates a kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card for those who engage in grossly immoral actions while in positions of power and authority. If goodness, salvation, rightness, and holiness are all things that are conflated and treated as the same, and that those who hold spiritual authority also always hold moral authority— then it becomes really easy to say any actions committed by those in power are inherently justified, even if the action itself is grossly abusive and immoral. 
This brings me to another reason why this question of actions and their consequences matter so much if you're going to be building a spirituality and a theology that has no devils or no ultimate evils that are the source of all harm and suffering. If consequences and impacts are what matter the most for assessing right and wrong, then actions and their morality is based more on what are the impacts and circumstances leading to that action than necessarily whether the action in isolation is inherently wrong. A great example of how this could play out is in the realm of human sexuality. If you look at, say, a more conservative Christian approach to morality, then two people of the same gender engaging in sexual activity is always immoral. Why? Because there's verses in the Bible that are pointed to, because this is described as a perversion of the natural order, because sex is supposed to be used for procreation, and a whole bunch of other reasons that really stack up to that the action in and of itself is something that is always wrong, because the action is inherently evil, it is inherently sinful, and that's all there is to it. If we take devils out of the equation, if we take this sense of things being inherently good or inherently evil out of the story, then what do you have left? You have two people who are expressing their feelings for each other. And there's lots of different ways that you can have relationship if sex is not just tied up to procreation and specifically creating these nice, neat nuclear families. So, you know, whatever it is that your particular boundaries and agreements are, it comes down to more is everybody involved consenting is what you're doing harmful to people. Are you being harmed by the other people? And so on. Any form of queer sex, which is considered to be completely unacceptable in many mainstream branches of Christianity, instead is evaluated based on what are the consequences and impacts of this. And as long as everything involved is safe and consensual and everybody is taking appropriate precautions, then there really isn't any harm done. The danger that may lie in having unsafe sex isn't so much you are engaging in a relationship that is not considered to be sanctified by holy powers, as it is that if you are not being careful, then there's the risk of things like unwanted pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, and other things that are definitely negative. And if someone is engaging in, say, non-consensual behavior, then they are doing harm to other people. But the reasons why those things are bad isn't because anything about queer sexuality is inherently bad. It's because people may be irresponsible or they might do things that are deliberately or unintentionally harmful. And those acts of harm and irresponsibility are what make those particular instances morally suspect. Not because the people involved are inherently sinful or whatever, but because people involved may have been acting in ways that showed a disregard for the needs, boundaries, and circumstances of the other people who were involved in that relationship. Sexual assault, violations of consent, stuff like that are still wrong. But the reason why they're wrong is because they are doing harm to people. 
political violence is another example of this question in action. If you are looking, for example, at people who are using the powers of political systems to maintain oppressive and destructive systems, then those acts of violence are wrong because they are doing harm to people. They are threatening people's ability to thrive. They are making their lives absolutely miserable. Those things are all valid reasons for something to be wrong. In fact, the uh, Volundark Vita, which is an entire saga in the Poetic Edda, gives a pretty powerful example of uh, the idea in Nordic practice that you are actually justified to revolt against your oppressors and strike them down if necessary. That doesn't mean all actions taken in that struggle are necessarily always right, but rather the question of whether or not an action is justified or necessary is defined more by what are the likely consequences and impacts of that action than whether the action is inherently moral or immoral on its own merits. More broadly, harm is sometimes necessary and sometimes, though not always justified, based on if the circumstances have made it necessary and allow for it. What also lends further weight to this approach and interpretation is unpacking the actual history of the concept of the devil, of an ultimate evil that is the source of all that is wrong within the world. So what is this character we call the devil? Well, the devil has his own, their own, however you want to refer to them, complicated mythology and lore that has developed and changed over the course of history. One thing I'd like to emphasize in this episode is when I'm talking about the devil here, I'm talking more specifically about the Christian devil. There's two reasons for that. The first is that the devil, as we know within Christianity, is probably the most prominent, widespread, and visible, as well as socially and culturally impacting example of this concept. And also because the Christian devil is a very different creature, even from comparable characters that you might find in Jewish and Muslim practice. In many ways, the concept of a devil as this ultimate opponent of God is very much a Christian invention, and one that's not even that old as far as the history of Christianity is concerned. What I'm going to do here is first talk a little bit about these different concepts of the devil before then diving a bit into the history of this figure of myth. Now, when you hear the word devil or Satan or anything similar, the image that probably comes to mind is some kind of powerful, almost equal to the Christian God enemy of all things that are good, righteous, and holy. But this figure is one that, as I've said before, has very recent origins and also very uniquely Christian ones. When you look into Judaism, for example, you have the figure of Shaitan, who particularly shows up in the book of Job and serves as God's prosecutor, if you will, his official tormentor. 
a being who God makes a deal with in the book of Job to torment Job and test Job's faith. Everything this figure does is within the purview of God and implicitly or explicitly, as is the case of the book of Job, has God's support to go ahead and make it happen. Though this being does terrible things, these actions are in the service of God's will and not in opposition to or as some kind of greater campaign to destroy the works of God and creation. The Muslim figure of Iblis follows this pattern somewhat in being an eternal tormentor, except for that Iblis isn't even an angel, but is instead a jinn, which is another kind of being that exists within Arabic and Middle Eastern folklore, who refused to bow before Adam when Allah commanded that all beings within creation bow before Adam. Upon being punished, Iblis vowed revenge against Adam and all of his descendants. However, this is a figure that is still ultimately bounded within the power of God, and even more importantly, isn't even of godly origin. Iblis is the source of temptation and straying from the path of God, but beginning with the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but in no sense is Iblis ever depicted as being within the same ballpark of power or influence as God within Islam. Incapable of meaningfully resisting or opposing Allah's will. This also feels consistent with when you're talking transcendental monotheism to say that even the being that is causing harm or is being destructive or in other ways doing these things that we attribute to the Christian devil is ultimately still happening under the power of that God, that there's no limit to that God's power. So it's logically consistent that they are servants of that deity. The Christian devil is more unusual and a lot messier. And that's because there is a lot of history in terms of how the devil develops over time. Initially, when you go back to, like, say, the medieval devil, or even, you know, further back, Satan, the devil, however you want to call them, does show up in early Christian texts. He shows up as the tempter of Jesus and does seem to share a similar role as Shaitan does, as well as Iblis. So it's kind of interesting how this then diverges to where you have the devil of medieval folklore who is also a tempter, but is treated as almost this bumbling, oafish figure who can be tricked even by the common peasant and is really a far cry from the suave dealmaker that you see in popular culture today. A great example in modern American folklore of this older conception of the devil that's endured to the modern day is the devil went down to Georgia, which is where the devil goes to Georgia and challenges a fiddle player to win their soul. And if the devil loses in this fiddle contest, then the fiddle player wins a fiddle made of gold. Like similar kind of wagers like that show up throughout medieval and coming into like a lot of early modern folklore as well, that the devil isn't this like ultimate evil. They're just this being that's allowed to exist and serves a similar role while also 
to an extent having a bit of overlap and bleed over from what you see from other existing folklore. You can see definite elements of stuff that's similar to how, say, the Fae or certain kind of Vaitir and other similar animistic powers are depicted in pre-Christian Europe. The deal-making is a more specific attribute, and something that I think is in part because in polytheistic cultures, it's sort of acceptable to make bargains and deals with deity in a way that is not acceptable in a monotheistic culture. But overall, you can kind of see this initial understanding of the devil as being a mishmash of both what was inherited from Judaism, as well as what then developed through the process of conversion and syncretizing the other forms of spirituality that existed in continental Europe at the time. The devil as a serious force in Christian spirituality doesn't really become a thing until the Reformation, which is where you see what would have been to particularly Catholic Christians, but Christians generally at the time is one of the most traumatic developments within the Holy Mother Church, the sundering of the church that had claimed ascent from St. Peter and held the keys to the kingdom of heaven on Jesus's behalf. This period of religious reformation also coincides with multiple different extremely brutal religious conflicts, such as the partially religious, partially nationalistic Dutch 80 Years War of Independence, the 30 Years War in the 1610s to the 1640s, which absolutely devastated Germany, and multiple other similar religious conflicts that rocked Europe during this period. In the midst of the breakdown of these powerful institutions and rising literal battlefield strife, it makes sense that the figure of the devil starts to become more important. It's from the Counter-Reformation period that you get the first actual like codified rites of exorcism put out by the Catholic Church, as well as the expansion of the Inquisition, orders like the Jesuits and others to ensure doctrinal conformity. You could make the argument that modern religion as we understand it, complete with specific adherence to specific doctrines and enforcement of those doctrines by religious authorities, is a product of this time of violence and conflict. This also, by the way, is the time of the witch burnings, where witch trials broke out across Europe, as in some cases it was people who were engaging in different forms of folk medicine or maybe practices that did somewhat abut remaining elements of pre-Christian spirituality, as well as simple cases of jealousy, misfortune, and other similar causes that led to a lot of innocent people being accused and lit up as witches and servants of Satan. Justifying all of this required a whole host of ideas going back to the Malleus Maleficarum, and along with this comes a theology that begins to treat the devil as a much more powerful figure, as something that isn't just a being that is made fun of or used as the butt of jokes, but as something that's a genuine threat to Christian civilization. This is something that especially takes shape on the frontiers of new European colonial empires, whether you're talking British North America or the Spanish Americas. 
In both places, colonists talked about how the wilderness that lay just beyond, and especially in British North America, was infested with the works of Satan and the devil, something that, in the case of both regions, was seemingly justified by the existence of indigenous spiritualities that in some ways conformed to what Europeans expected to see, and also widely diverged from their expectations. For the modern world, this all comes together with a little piece of literature known as Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost is where you can really see the codification of this shift of the devil from being another figure within God's creation is ultimately subservient to the power of God to a genuine rival for the powers of heaven. Though there are elements that exist within the Bible that are interpreted as suggesting that the angel who becomes known as Lucifer, who becomes Satan, as well as the devil and all that jazz, may have existed in some form or another, and there there may have been something of a heavenly clash. It's not until John Milton's Paradise Lost and then Paradise Regained that, that Satan makes this transformation from what we see in, say, Dante's Divine Comedy, where Satan, far from being the master of hell and the inflictor of torments on those present, is just as imprisoned as everybody else, to the proud Lucifer morning star, the angel who led a third of heaven's hosts in rebellion against all the rest and was cast down into the pit for his defiance, who then took revenge against God by introducing original sin and tempting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This, by the way, is very much an interpolation that comes from this time, Because when you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you look at the oldest versions of that, the snake in the garden is just a snake. And there's certain elements of almost like a just so story that the snake had their legs struck off by God for tempting Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's also this whole thing where the Elohim, which is the uh, Hebrew word for the plural of God, so gods, lament that if these humans can eat from the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then they will become like us as gods. Lucifer Morningstar, now named as Satan in Milton's poem, is a very different character and is a far cry from Dante's powerless victim from the butt of medieval humor. This is a being that is capable of genuinely threatening God's creation. And of course, Milton, like any good author in any time period ever, particularly ones working in myth, couldn't resist the opportunity to put some of the opinions he didn't like and disagreed with in the mouth of Lucifer. Things like equal rights, democracy, and all this other stuff that had been advocated by the levelers during the English Civil War, which happened a bit before Paradise Lost was actually written. So, you know, that is something that's in the air and part of the context of that and Cromwell and everything else. This is what gives us the modern form of Satan as we know it. And from here you get a figure that is held up as an inherent adversary, a force that is threatening to creation and everything it represents. So, maybe you're wondering, 
is this something that is as unique to Christianity and its particular history as I'm suggesting? Maybe, just maybe, there might be figures you could describe as devils with a Nordic myth. Though, as we'll soon see, it takes a lot more somersaults and backflips to get from figures like the Jotnar and Loki to something you could actually describe as being this kind of devilish opposition force. So let's talk a bit about that. Because so far I've been talking a lot about this broader theory of a theology without devils and giving the example of how the concept of a devil is something that's deeply embedded in Christianity. This is definitely the part where more than a few listeners are probably going to go, but what about the gods and giants? What about the great clash that is at the heart of Ragnarok? The culmination of all of Nordic myth, one of the most potent cosmic and mythic events that happens with this in, in this entire corpus of work. What about that? Doesn't that, in the ways that it feels on sort of a vibes level, a lot like the book of Revelations and the final battle between heaven and hell, that this devil stuff may actually not be that unique to Christianity? The thing is, that requires putting a paint job onto the Nordic material that doesn't really fit the underlying vehicle, if you get my meaning. Now, I've talked a bit before, both in my books as well as in an earlier podcast episode about the Jotnar, how the Jotnar are best understood as cosmic forces representing the broader powers of nature, the wilderness, and all these other things that lie beyond human ken. And this is something that's easy to then say as well. Clearly, they represent chaos in opposition to the order of the Aesir, and this inherently makes them bad and evil. But the Aesir and Jotnar don't really act this way towards each other. Like, this is something that I think is very important that gets missed. When we talk about the heaven and hell myth that you see within Christianity, the angels and demons kind of dichotomy, angels and demons are enemies, and never the twain shall meet. You don't see stories like, for example, Good Omens, where angels and demons have friendly relationships until the last hundred years or so of popular media and culture. Now, granted, there could be somewhere that is an exception that proves me wrong there, and I'm totally open to being proven wrong on that. But generally speaking, these are two forces that do not mix, that exist in opposition to each other like oil and water. That is not true of the Aesir and the Jotnar. Exhibit A, Odin and his brothers, who are by the account of Snorri Sturluson and other sources like within the poetic Edda are the grandchildren of Buri and Bor, who both based on accounts within Snorri's prose Edda intermarried with existing Jotnar who lived in the time of Ymir. So by the time you get to Odin and his brothers, if you're going to try to do this based purely on bloodlines, then Odin and his brothers are all probably three quarters Jotun and only one quarter whatever Bor and Bori were. 
Exhibit B is Odin's son Thor, as well as the god Tyr. Thor is famously described as being the son of Odin and Jord, the Jotnar of the Earth. So clearly, there's not only no particular like hard lines that say Aesir and Jotnar shall never meet, because if there were, then Thor wouldn't be a thing, unless we're talking some really, really weird divine uh, procreation, which, hey, you know, Heimdall was born of nine mothers, and you can explain that biology however you want. It doesn't really track with what we know in the material world and probably involves some very interesting cosmic shenanigans to make it work. But leaving that particular bit aside for a minute here, that Thor is able to be a product of this relationship shows that there's nothing that really says these things are not inherently supposed to come together, that they are cosmic opposites in some fundamental way. Tyr also, very importantly, is the son of the Jotnar Hymir. So he's not even related by blood or even necessarily by marriage to any of the other Aesir, but he's counted as so much of one of the Aesir that he was the one willing to sacrifice his hand to bind down the wolf Fenrir. Tyr's mother is not listed anywhere, so it's certainly possible that maybe in some sources that's how that works. But it seems, if we're going off of his one known parent, Hymir, that Tyr is a member of the Aesir by affinity more than by blood right or marriage. That suggests groupings like Aesir, Vanir, and Jotnar are not so much hard and fast cosmic lines that are drawn between these different forces as they are social groupings among beings of similar nature power and influence and exhibit c we could say is skadi and njord as well as frere and gerd two examples of intermarriage that happen within the source material directly between non-jotun and jotun beings as I covered in the first explainer, the story of Frerengird is something of a love story filtered through the expectations of the time period when this stuff was written, because the negotiations definitely get quite a bit hairy between Skirner and Gerd. But the point is, is that Frere sits upon Odin's throne, is struck with love for Gerd, and must have her. And there's nothing that really gets in the way of them pursuing this other than is Gerd and Gerd's father okay with allowing this marriage to go ahead it's not like anyone in Asgard or in Vanaheim walks up and says but my lord you must not or something like that Frere sends forth Skirner to do the negotiations and once they're resolved on to wedding bells and a happy couple with Skadi and Njord we see not just that intermarriage is a thing that's possible, but also that there's deeper customs that everybody really seems to respect because their marriage is one that's born out of Weirgild. Weirgild is the idea, and this is something that is critical in fire and ice practice now, that every person has a certain value. And if you do harm to somebody, then you must offer recompense to the people around them who are impacted by that harm. Such as, for example, you get into a drunken brawl with your neighbor one night and you break his wrist. So therefore, the wear gold you have to offer is to 
do labor on your neighbor's farm until the wrist is healed. In the case of Skadi and Njord, Skadi's father, the giant Thiazi, had been slain by the Aesir during the whole debacle involving the kidnapping of Iduna and a whole lot of shape-shifting and Loki getting everybody into and out of trouble. And don't worry, we'll get to Loki in a minute. And as a result, Skadi now had no father. She lacked for his presence, everything he represented and all of that. So she put on her armor, grabbed her weapons, marched to the gates of Asgard, banged on the door and said, I demand that you give me recompense for this harm that you did to me and mine. And the Aesir, rather than fight or say, piss off, we don't deal with that, said, all right, then let's do it. And provided Weirgild in the form of Loki making Skadi laugh and a husband. Although she was only allowed to pick that husband based on his feet. Skadi picked Njord because his feet were the cleanest, and she assumed that because they were clean and beautiful feet, they must be attached to Balder and not to Njord. Eventually, the two get amicably divorced because they really didn't work out well as a couple. But that's not something that was ever really blamed on Vanir and Jotnar or gods and giants can never marry. Skadi is also treated as still being a member of the Aesir and is present in the Locusena when they're all feasting in Aegir and Ron's Hall, and none of this is treated as unusual or strange. Even the feast within Aegir and Ron's Hall also shows this sense of shared underlying values, because Aegir and Ron are Jotnar, and yet they open their hall and offer hospitality to Aesir, Vanir, and Jotnar, in part because they're the only people with a big enough cauldron to brew enough beer for everybody, but also because that's what you do as a host. And part of establishing and affirming social relationships in that society was holding these kind of feasts and other social events that brought people together in the sharing of food and drink and time and company and all kinds of other things. So what about Loki? the god who is often blamed as the architect of Ragnarok, the great enemy of the Aesir who betrayed them, almost a heathen Judas. Judas is actually a good place to start with this. Now, as Azra Sotolaro, who writes for On Black Wings, and I've got a link to this particular article available in the episode description below, is that Snorri goes to some pretty considerable lengths to make the Nordic myth fit into a concept Christians had known as natural religion, which was this idea that societies who were sufficiently sophisticated, intelligent, and moral would stumble on something that looks kind of a lot like Christianity without ever hearing about Christ, and therefore that meant they were ripe for missionary work and conversion, because Clearly, they're already halfway there. We just got to paint a Jesus fish on top and then we're good, right? Loki easily fits within this frame, but not as Satan. Because we have to remember, Snorri's writing a little bit before Dante did the Inferno and the Divine Comedy. Granted, I'm not going to say that Snorri was reading Dante or anything like that. I don't have anything to prove that. But he was living in this environment where the figure of the devil wasn't the big villain. Let's go back to Dante for a minute and remember that 
Satan is not alone in the deepest circle of hell. He is also with the most prominent betrayers in history, which, according to Dante, were Brutus and Cassius, the two Roman senators who helped assassinate Julius Caesar, and Judas Iscariot, the disciple of Jesus who sold out Christ to the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas is the one who I think is more relevant when we're talking about Loki, because the role he plays is as the one who is brought into the fold before then becoming the betrayer of everything they stand for, as opposed to necessarily an oppositional figure from the start. And Loki and Odin are even blood-sworn brothers. One of the best examples of this is in the Locusena, where Loki turns to Odin and says, Excuse me, Allfather, but you once swore that every time you take a drink, I will as well. To which Odin begrudgingly accepts that Loki has to stay in the hall and then get extremely drunk and talk trash on everybody present. That, by the way, is probably one reason why there's three different verses about drunkenness in the Havamal that land on, it's okay to have a little bit and enjoy yourself, but please don't get trashed, because you might regret it. Nothing better shows the inherent evil of Loki and foreshadows this treachery like the birth of Loki's children, namely Hela, Jormungandr, and Fenrir. Two out of three who are immediately described as being dangerous enemies of the Aesir. But is Loki fully unjustified in his actions? Is he just some kind of backstabbing traitor who turned on those he was sworn to after birthing the instruments of their demise? Well, let's look at that a bit. Throughout myth, Loki is a causer and solver of many different problems. Loki, for example, is the reason why the great defensive wall gets built around Asgard. Loki's why Odin and Thor have their mighty spear and hammer. And Loki's also been important for resolving many other problems and challenges facing the Aesir. Now, in many of those instances, except for the case of the wall around Asgard, Loki may be the cause of these problems, but they also solve these problems, and in this way fulfills a similar kind of trickster role that's also played out by Odin, who, by the way, absolutely engages in oath-breaking, backstabbing, violations of hospitality, and all kinds of other stuff just when he was stealing the meat of poetry. If anyone scans closer to the modern Lucifer, I think you could make a strong case that it's Odin as a Lucifer who beat God, than as Loki, the maker and solver of many problems. Loki has also, in their defense, had wrong done to them. Fenrir was bound not based on anything the wolf did, but based on the fear of the Aesir that the wolf might do something. Jormungandr was cast into the sea the moment it came out into existence, and begins its feud with Thor, not because of any kind of inherent animosity, but because of a little incident in the Heimsvitka where Thor goes fishing and throws out a bit of bait consisting of an ox head and manages to snare Jormungandr. And then when Jormungandr won't let go, Thor takes his hammer and nails Jormungandr's head to its tail 
which, you know, ow. And then you have Loki's two children who are slaughtered at the end of the Locusena as punishment before Loki is then thrown into the cave with the snake. Now, Loki does also imply that they have some culpability in the death of Balder, and that is something that can be debated in any number of different directions. But even in that case, what seems to be true when you look at the different myths of Balder is that Loki's role, if any, was more as fulfilling their status as an instigator and upsetter of circumstances than deliberately seeking to lay Balder low and slay them. Loki, by the time of Ragnarok, is a being that, whether or not you agree with the treatment they've received, one who does, within Nordic morality and myth, have every justification for seeking revenge against the beings who did them so much harm after welcoming them in as one of their own. Loki, like Fenrir, did not set out to become a foe of the Aesir at the final battle of all worlds. Circumstances and unresolved grievances were what put them on that road more than anything else. Which is a far cry from the jealous first among angels, the bumbling tempter, the however version of the devil that you want to go, who's set up as a force in opposition to the divine. Loki is one of many gods, as are all the others, and none of the gods are inherently good or bad in what they do. So it doesn't really fit to make Loki or the Jotun into Urzat's devils and demons when the relationship really just doesn't fit at all. When a better description of the conflict between these powers is more a breaking down of existing social mores, tendencies, and systems for resolving conflict then it is proof of some kind of inherent clash of good and evil, order and chaos, and all that. So to circle things back around again, a spirituality without devils is something that is central to fire and ice practice, and is also a concept that I think shows up throughout different forms of pagan practice in different ways and different understandings though not necessarily with this specific articulation. What it means is that we have freedom while also having to take care of the consequences of our actions. Right and wrong are something that we decide based on impacts and outcomes rather than adherence to abstract values, which may or may not even resemble the world as we know it now, or even the world as it existed then. There's also, as I've described over the course of this episode, no real need to have a devil figure. Devils are a thing that emerged out of Christianity and its very specific history, conditions, and challenges. There is also nothing in Nordic lore supporting importing this idea into our spirituality. And I honestly think doing that causes more harm than it solves. 
and creates excuses for repeating so many mistakes committed by organized mainstream religion that we really don't have an excuse to repeat. I'd think we should all know better than to put too much weight into an idea that is based more in power and control than meeting people's needs. And I hope that continues to be the case for heathenry, paganism, and other if similar kinds of spirituality going about into the radical future. Heathen practice, we have head no on devils, on and we have no need for them. Where you can find articles, and with that, classes, this is Ryan resources Smith at the Wayward Wanderer. This podcast Signing was created off. and produced by Ryan Smith. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.